how do you make your decisions? I think most of them are subconscious, aren't they? The best number of people for decision making is either five or seven. But with five and seven, you should have two or three non-experts in that group. If they are all experts, they're very, very unlikely to change their opinion if they disagree. Is it becoming more difficult for leaders, for anyone, to make decisions? Is it becoming more difficult? Yes. And I think that is because we've moved from the age of orthodoxy into the age of uncertainty and ambiguity. Hello, I'm Chris Lizerman and welcome to Sparks, a series by Interactive Workshops. In every episode, we spark something in work and life, from how to spark collaboration, to how to spark commercial targets, to how to spark decision-making. John, can we make some decisions? Let's do it. Let's be decisive. I've decided that's going to be our topic. Um, who are you going to get as your expert slash guest on this show, Christopher? Uh, I'm going to get you, actually, if that's all right. That's a big, bold decision. Eh? <laughs> that's quite, is, is it risky? It's risky, yeah, because you never know. I never know what I'm going to say. That's true. That's very true. But here you are once again. Thank you, John, for joining me. We're going to dive straight into it. Decision making. What kind of decisions are we making here? Well, first of all, asking me how I am. Yeah. Can decide to do that. Yeah. Or I might decide not to. I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> how are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Yeah, really well, thank you. Fired up, ready to go for, for the podcast. Yeah, great to be in the Sparks studio again. Yeah. Uh, Chris, yeah, no, it's going to be an interesting topic today, isn't it? Decision making. Mm. How do you make your decisions? I mean, I think most of them are subconscious, aren't they? I think we know from from research that a lot of it is just going through the motions of, did I really decide what I put on today? Did I really decide what to have for breakfast? Or was mm. it just there? Was it what, just what I did yesterday? Mm. A lot of them are just part of routine and, and process and they're subconscious. Yeah, isn't that a good job? Mm. I mean, when I did my psychology degree little 20-year-old cognitive scientist there at the University of Exeter, I was fascinated to realise that a lot of the decisions that we make are habituated, heuristic, they're the rule of thumb decisions, automatic. And the the great thing about that is that it doesn't take any brain power. If, for example, the classic example, if you really thought, had to think about how to get to work every day and try and decide... You drive down the road in your on your bike or in your car, and at every junction you had to decide: should I turn left or right or go straight on? And then the next one: should I go left or right, turn straight on? And then the traffic lights: should I actually stop even though it's red? And then the pedestrian: mm. should I let them cross or should I just drive straight on? I mean, if you had to really think about that, you wouldn't get very far in life. Right. Similarly, actually, if we go to a restaurant, a lot of people, the way they make decisions in restaurants, I don't know how you, I'm not actually, I don't want to give this away. How do you, how, when you go into a restaurant, let's say you go to Pizza Express. Yeah. I went there on the weekend, actually. Yeah. Yeah. What are the different ways that you might, did you go to there? Yeah. Did, no. I did. did yeah. You? yeah. Yeah. That was good. Day night. How, how did you, um, <laughs> how did you choose what to have? Uh, well, um, looked at the menu. So you've got that, you've got that information. So you've got visual. Yeah. You've menu got that card. visual uh, card, all yeah. the, all the things that they offer yeah. that are food. They give to you in a long list. Yeah, it's a long so you list. Look through the list. And uh, a lot of it is choosing what we know we like. Yeah. Safe. Yeah. I choose something for me, which is my main. Okay. My wife chooses something for her. Do you remember what you had? I had uh, the Fiorentina pizza. Okay. Have have you had that before? Yes, I have had that before. Every time you go to the Pizza Express, how roughly what percentage of times you get that Fiorentina pizza again and again? It's one in four, probably. Okay, 25%. What are your other choices on that menu? Oh, there's there's a lot of other choices. I mean, with every one, you've got the choice of the Romana base or not. So Always there's that the flexibility. Base, yeah, that's yeah. what I went for on the weekend. Um, the uh, American classic pepperoni. Okay, is, what is percentage of time do you have that? 
Uh, it's a smaller percentage, but that's increasing. Pepperoni's is going up in my pizza yeah, <laughs> ranking. Okay. And how, how, how often do you pizza get is entirely random? Um, if there's something new on the menu, I do like to try it. Okay. Yeah. So, so this is great. So you've got yeah. heuristics. You've got your Fiorentina. Yeah. Uh, if there's something on new on the menu, you're probably going to have that. Is that Trump the Fiorentina? It, yeah, it probably yeah. does. If it sounds so, good, I'll try the new and thing. Then, uh, what's the criteria for the American hot or pepperoni, whatever it was? Uh, it, basically, if I'm feeling it, if, if that's the one... Okay. That takes my fancy. If I'm in an American mood, you know, yeah. want some of the, the feelings of being in New York. That's the one I go for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this is, and isn't this fascinating? I yeah. mean, how human beings make decisions mm. is one of the mm. most fascinating things. Yeah. Even in your little story, you've gone to Pizza Express. Yeah. Why? It was the best available restaurant in yeah. mine and my wife's opinion. Yeah. On the given day. How often is it? Is that the best restaurant? Uh, it's probably not always the best restaurant, <laughs> but I think we choose it quite it's a lot. Quite a frequent choice. Yeah, it? yeah. It's, so a, it's a mutual. We are very we, we habitual like. creatures. Yeah. Yeah. We're very habitual. I mean, let's think about it. If you if you were to go about your date night like this, mm. you walk down the road, mm. and in the, you've just moved to Bristol a few uh, last year, didn't you? So let's imagine that you just go each shop, each restaurant. You walk down the road, and you just each one you go in. And then the next week you go in the next one. Mm. And then the next week you go in the next one. Mm. And the next week the next one. That would, would be, be completely bonkers. Yeah. I'll tell you what else is bonkers for in this context. Yeah. Day and night. We actually did this once. And I don't know whether I'd recommend it. But what we did was every decision you make. So you leave the house. But then every decision you make from that point on, you take it in turns. as oh, to choose. Good, yeah. So rather than trying to choose the day and night, where do we go? Do we walk? Do we get get the tube? You know, do we which restaurant? Do we pick that now? Do we, how far are we going to go? Are we going to get in the car or are we just going to try and walk somewhere? Rather than make all of those decisions before you left the house, you just leave. Mm, and I then know. I choose whether to get on a bus or walk down the street. Yeah, and good. and then when you get to the end of the street, it's the other person's yeah, choice. So that's very playful, isn't it? And, yeah. and it, this I. I guess what I'm alluding to is that a lot of our human decision-making is based on heuristics. And this is mm. what I love to my degree. It's like, okay, the, so our schema, it's called our, our mental process schema for how we go out for dinner with our partner mm. is pretty straightforward. We we go out to yeah. one of the restaurants we, it's pretty, either, we yeah. pretty much like or yeah. we've been to before or we've recently had recommended, maybe it opened a bit like the mm. new pizza. Mm. Then... Then we pick one of we normally pick one of the things we've had before. Most people do that. Yep. It's quite if you were to go into a restaurant and pick things that you don't even know what they are, mm. that's quite a bold strategy. But yeah. you're doing that with the new thing, but it's got the word new next to it. So you've, you've yeah. got a little uh and we 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 we'd like to follow these patterns. Uh, mm. The same for breakfast, the same actually for work. Uh we we go into work, we like to have the same meetings, we do the same things, we like to sit in the same desk, we like to speak to the same people. And um, the reverse is also true, that, that when we create for ourselves, like you have the, a methodology of escaping that, mm. we feel like we're getting really stimulated. Yeah. That's what, I mean, there's a thing called a holiday, isn't it? Where we wake up in a different bed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, different with place. a different view. Different with a different zone. breakfast, different yeah. time zone, different weather. Yeah. And we thought, we're like, wow, this is really good for us, isn't it? Mm. So I guess what we're both saying is that, mm. that heuristic decision making is, is quick, fast, and um, lowers mental load. That's just one area of decision making, right? Yeah. But, but the, the process, the process by which we make the decisions, process. very often it's this kind of it's heuristic often in decision that, making. in that way, yeah. yeah. What about the things that maybe really matter? I think pizza really matters, but there's probably some bigger things of life that we're deciding on. Yeah, do you know what, Chris? It's interesting though. So we do a lot of work in business, don't we, with leadership. Mm. We do a lot of work where we're working with big companies. And this is my observation after 
many years of doing this, I th- I feel that the companies that we go into that are struggling with decisions, I don't think companies really make that many brave decisions. Mm. If they did, I think they'd go bankrupt. So brave has to equate to somehow risky, somehow. Otherwise, yep. it's not that brave, mm. right? Yeah. If you keep taking risky decisions, what's going to happen? One of them's going to go badly wrong, presumably, at some point, if you keep doing it yeah. every so, time. So if you were to take a 50-50 decision, mm. the first time, we're tossing a coin, mm. 50-50, mm-hmm. and the first time you win, right, and then you do it again, and you lose, that's what should happen. Mm. If businesses take lots of risky decisions, brave decisions, I don't think they're going to be very successful, but those decisions are dialed up in our mind as, you know, that's what genius is. And actually, I don't think business is about genius like that. I think businesses and organizations, sensible commercial organizations, they're actually trying to maximize the success. And to do that, they're actually trying to avoid taking brave decisions and in general play things mm. safe. But that isn't the narrative that we put about, about what makes great business or great leaders. If, if Trust me, if you work for a business that always took brave decisions, you would be really annoyed in three <laughs> months' time because yeah. they'll keep taking risky decisions. Yeah. Um, and we don't really... Businesses set up for sustainable mm. um, maximising of profits, yeah. not short-term maximising of profits. Mm. So we actually don't really want to embrace the narrative that we're surrounded by, that we should take risks and we should make big, risky decisions as much as possible. Well, we, we do need to keep making decisions. Mm. But my my subtle and sophisticated point here is pretty much most business decisions that we make should be ones that other business people would also make as well. Yeah. Because they should be kind of decisions that wise people, sensible people yep. would look at and say, yeah, that's mm. a good decision. Mm. If we keep making the outlier, yep. uh, we will eventually come unstuck probably quite quickly. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it, that it goes against that that narrative that you should do something as a business that no other business would do. Yeah, but, but what's interesting about it is also how much time senior executives spend in decision-making and meetings and discussion. We have our board meeting, don't we? Mm. And yeah. I consider it board by name, board by nature. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Getting stuck on decisions. But, 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 but we never make any interesting ones, really, because mm. that's not the point of a board meeting is to no. is not to turn up and say, um, you know, plan A... Right, plan B. Oh, you know plan B? Plan C. Oh, you know this ridiculous idea that we've got that might never work? Let's do that. That's not really what board meetings no. are for. No, more often they're for making the sensible decision that most businesses would do. Yeah, the, the other... other yeah. Even We even have non-exec directors who come in from other businesses that know nothing about the businesses they're working in in particular, specifically to try to help them make sensible mm. decisions and not not make the, the crazy ones. The wild ones, yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting. And I'm wondering about our, our our ability to make decisions. Is that something that's largely based on personality? Or is that something that is just, we have grown the skills to varying degrees? I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think personality plays a big role in it, Chris. I, for example, do like new things. So I have a bias towards exciting stuff. And in fact, one of my biggest learnings as a leader was the need to be boring. Uh, because you can't keep changing the playground all the time. Uh, so, yeah, I do think personality, um, if you go to a financial advisor, for example, and start talking about your pension, the first thing they'll ask you is, what's your risk appetite? 
are you happy to have your pension mainly in quite risky stocks, but that might have a high yield? Or have you got a very low risk appetite and you, you'd like to have your, your pension in a very safe uh, fund that you can't lose your money? And I, th- I do think so. I do think that plays into the types of decisions we make at work. But actually also work-based decision-making is, is very much a social activity, isn't it? It's got other people. And so there's something about the interplay of those personalities that, that also affects the type of decisions that can get made. Yeah, yeah. So all of our personalities are contributing to the, de- the collective decisions of companies and our individual decisions as people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Given how uncertain the world is, volatile, we could talk about VUCA, is it becoming more difficult for leaders, for anyone, to make decisions? Is it becoming more difficult? Yes. And I think that is because we've moved from the age of orthodoxy of businesses and business decisions into the age of uncertainty and ambiguity. Uh, We can run back over the last five years and list multiple world events that have changed markets, landscapes. In the UK, we've had, I think, four prime ministers in five years. Uh, And we've got an election next year in... Uh, the world, we've had health scares, wars, financial crises. But then you've got to look back and say, well, is, are those things, were they not happening before? And they probably were. But, but I think the thing here is that the ambiguity that we face means that we never really know exactly what's going to happen. And I also think technology speeds this up. So like, if you think about the age of industrialization and manufacturing, mm. you've got to decide to build a factory that makes cars. Yeah, uh, Building the factory takes two years. And then that car will be in production for seven years. So you can make a decision knowing that basically there's a 10-year uh, framework on which you're going to recoup your investment or you're going to have to live with your decision. Whereas um, if you think about technology, it can change so quickly and the investment cycles might be quite short and the market might be changing quite quickly. And therefore, you know, what we do today, we could change tomorrow and the, and the day after. And so we don't really have to stick with our decisions in the same way. And neither can we because the, the world's moving on and changing. Uh, so I was discussing this recently with a, a senior exec at a FTSE uh, company over dinner. And he was reminding me, and I found it very helpful, you've just got to keep taking decisions in this environment. The worst thing you can do is procrastinate and then you've done neither thing. You've done, neither done the good thing nor the, the right thing nor the wrong thing. You've done nothing. Mm-hmm. And business is not about doing nothing. Yeah, and we could say that in itself is a decision that has been made yeah, without much again, conscious it's, thought. It's, it's perhaps more of a, a heuristic, isn't it, a rule of thumb? Mm. Keep making decisions, mm. keep driving things forward. Yeah, but You might make mistakes, but just keep going. Yeah. Mm. And what other kind of decision-making is there? We've talked a little bit about the heuristic type of decisions. What else is there? So, so the heuristic type, I think, is how we make most decisions. There's another sort of subset of that, which is value-based decision-making. And if you think about values, they're quite, they're like an ideology, like some people have got values that come from their family, some from perhaps a religion that they subscribe to, some from a book that they've read, they've taken on certain values. Uh, And this sort of moral value-based decision-making tends to be pretty rigid uh, and quite impossible to overcome. And, And so those decisions are also quite quick. Each of us in kind of doing the right thing, those decisions are probably not that difficult either even if the consequences of those decisions are difficult we've already through our value framework we've accepted that that we're going to stick with this Mm. um and then we've got logic-based decisions and uh again i studied logic i've got a little puzzle for you okay but but a lot of people are not very good at logic (laughs) 
And therefore, this is, I think social media land is like this. Yeah. A lot of things that people are making decisions on, they're not very good at logic. Yeah. So I've got a little logic puzzle for you. Okay. okay five people were eating apples. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a finished before B. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But behind C. Okay. Okay. So there's persons A, B, and C. Yep. A finished before B. Mm-hmm. But behind C. D finished before E. Yeah. <laughs> but behind B. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you can you think about what order those people ate their apples in? Man. So E was before A finished what? before B. Yeah. But after C. Uh-huh. Yeah. So this A, then B. A finished before Blowing B. my mind. A finished after C though. Yeah. So A finished before B. Yeah. But after C. Yeah. It's really blowing my mind. Okay. What, who's who's, the, letters who's the first to finish out of those three? I've got no idea. Okay. A finished before B. <laughs> okay. Who's the first to finish out of those two? A finished before B. So A is before B. Yeah. A is before B. If you want them in a chronological order, yeah. But, but, a, but, but after C. A finished after C. So who's so C, A, B. Yes, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. But C, then we've got a, B. D and E coming into the yeah. mix. Okay. So D finished, D finished before, before e. e. Yeah. So, so we know that it goes D, E, but yeah. we don't know whether it's before but, cab or after cab. D finished behind B. Behind B, so yeah. that slots in. We don't. Do we know whether that's after C? Yeah, because we know that uh, B finished after C. So it's directly, directly yeah. after. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. So C A yeah. B D E. Yeah, yeah. That's a very that's a kid's logic problem. <laughs> <laughs> I like you. When I, I, I when I first <laughs> when I first looked at it, I was like, okay, right. Hang on a minute. So yeah. I think so. If we come back to business decisions, mm. um. You very rarely in a business meeting do people start to look at the prepositions and the logic behind them mm. and try to put them together. For some reason, logic in decision-making at work is very low. Um, so, the, I mean, if you work in an investment house or in a, uh, a bank, there's obviously this kind of logical thinking taking place. If we do X and Y and then Z, what's the interrelationship? Uh, but but in general business meetings, it's very rare for people to try to te tease out the logic. Mm. Um, I was in a meeting recently where one of the people in the meeting was saying that we wanted to make a data and scientific-based decision. and We were going to do that by running a trial. And the trial was going to exclude one of the possible options of how things could end up. But they were in their mind, that was scientific and logical i was pointing out that if it's scientific you have to include other options that you don't want to to win mm. in that trial that's that's it's logical you can't prove your case that a doesn't work by running b and c and saying that it does work so you know this this kind of logical decision making mm. you rarely see people challenge mm. each other on the logic of it and say does does your conclusion from a follow from your premises does does have you got the logic mapped out um and we can see why, because even with a stupid kids thing, it's quite hard to do. Mm. Yeah. So it's easy, the easy way is just to go with your gut and... Just social decision-making, decision yeah. talking around it. Actually, yeah. more like if we were at the pub and we we're going to order one meal that we're all going to have and we just mm. talk about it mm. and we just all, just all decide to order that Fiorentina pizza again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, there's but, little logic in the pub uh, 
decision making. Shall yeah. we stay for another round? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think most business meetings are a bit like that. Maybe yeah. there's also some hierarchy involved. Mm. Um, and a lot of people wait for the senior person to say what they think and then everyone just agrees with that. Right. Whereas if you were to follow the proper mm. process, you start with the junior person and that's how you get your Delphic decision making that we use here. Yeah. How do you not become very boring in that process? Because so far we've said the, the best businesses will make the the boring but sensible decisions. The best decision makers actually will will not go with a whim or go with their gut, but they'll use logic. How do we then find the, the excitement from that process? Um, well, let's think about when Cisco bought Splunk. <laughs> That's a good decision. Yeah. So Cisco, the company that makes the internet, also uh, Interactive Workshops, one of our top clients, uh, NASDAQ listed, they decided to spend 28 billion of their own cash. Quite a lot of cash. To buy Splunk. Yeah. Big decision. What is Splunk? I don't know what Splunk is. So Splunk is a big data platform that simplifies the task of collecting and managing very large amounts of data. So can you see that the decision to spend 28 billion of your own cash mm. on an acquisition of Splunk, yeah, that's quite a big decision. That's massive, yeah. That's a decision, isn't it? Huge, yeah. How would you make that decision? I think you'd want some kind of consensus, wouldn't you, at, at board level that you're going in the right direction? Yeah. You'd want to know similar-sized companies, those kind of acquisitions, do they work? How have they gone for Cisco before? Yeah, so have you got track record? Track records. It's competence. Your, yeah. your competence at making that kind of decision is yep. very key. Good, good. Yep. Chris, big, don't worry about the logic problem, Chris. Big, red, <laughs> big green tick for that. Yeah, <laughs> You'd be thinking about... Have, I, have we got the competence? Yeah. If we were to yeah. do this, have we got the competence to live with it? Yeah. 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 Can, we, have we, can we make those acquisitions? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And um, what's the risk if it goes wrong? What's the... Yeah. What's the um, you know, can we live with the consequences of if that doesn't work out? Is that going to be okay? Yeah, I mean, if you'd bought WeWork when it was listed at 141 billion, and then it's now basically worth nothing, that those you'd be pleased that you didn't buy that, wouldn't you? Because mm. there's a good question, like, what am I actually getting here? Mm. So your first question is the competence. Yeah. And can, could we make a success of this if we did it? That's quite a good question. That's the question I had to think before I proposed, actually. Mm. Like, between yeah. the two of us, can we make yeah, a success yeah. of this? Yeah, you got to. you got to think about um, that, haven't you? Buying a house, whether or not the bank finances it or whether we've got the money, yeah. once we've done it, can we can we pay the mortgage and can we make a success of living here? Mm -hmm. so the competence part is, is key for business. And actually, one of the things I was trained when I, when I was um, learning my craft was all a business really is is a set of competencies. So Airbus make aircraft and satellites. They don't make cars. And if you think, well, a car has got to be, there's more of them. They're simpler to make than airplanes. Uh, and then they're very popular, it seems, cars. <laughs> yeah. Well, why doesn't Airbus make cars? But it's because their competence is in yeah. um, aerospace. So I guess Cisco has to think about the Splunk acquisition. I think, do we have what it takes to make a success of a big data platform? Essentially, after we bought this, will it become more or less valuable? If we're not competent, it's going to become less valuable. Yeah. If we are competent, it's going to become more. Mm. Obviously, they'll have used a lot of uh, evaluation models and due diligence, but there's another way of thinking about this question, which is really interesting to me, which is evaluating not doing it. 
So if you don't buy Splunk for twenty eight mm. billion dollars of your own cash, one thing you've got is cash in the bank. Do you want cash in the bank as a company? Not really, no, because that cash is going down in value every day. Yep. And in a high inflation environment, which we've been in for the last couple of years, that that cash is going down by ten percent a year. So two point eight billion, twenty eight billion this year, you might lose three billion just of not spending your cash. Yeah. Every year. Yeah. So you've got to do something with it. Uh, and then the other thing is, what if we bought something else? And if you buy 28 billion of big company, that's probably quite valuable. Mm. But if you buy 28, imagine if you bought uh, 10 companies for 2 billion, yeah. would you make a success of that? Well, I, I like that. That one's hedged actually, because 10 companies for 2 billion, um, you only need to make a success of a few of them. But you could still lose billions. Buying 28 billion, it's probably, it's not, probably not a bad decision in the end. Um, but but uh, yeah, when you when you look into boardrooms at the very top level, there's these kind of discussions happening. But lower down in organisations where we spend more of our time, mm. a lot of the decisions that are being made, uh, really, you should just go with the most obvious and dare I say it, boring approach. Mm. Yeah, sadly, probably true. And um, perhaps we should carry it. We're not really saying go with your gut there. It's just go with the the, the logically the most sensible, most obvious. Um, well, you're going with your gut is there's a great book written, isn't there? Think fast, think slow. Mm. Uh, I think big decisions, your gut's a, a good indicator because you're getting multi-sensory mm. feelings about whether this is a good idea or not. Idea or not. Mm. But the real question is, do you understand the, the decision you're trying to make? Yeah. And that's my point about the logic. Going with your gut is um, hard to get paid for. Uh, it's hard to have that as a business decision that's not, at the easiest rationale to put into a set of minutes. Chris's gut said this. <laughs> yeah. Jonna's gut said that. It doesn't, you know, that's not really, we've got to use some kind of formula, some kind yeah, of evaluation data, tool. Yeah, we, yeah. And we could, we could also take a vote, couldn't we? So we could use a decision-making process. Yeah. We talked about um, senior stakeholders influencing everything, autocratic. Mm. I do, I fall into that. Uh, sometimes we could do a consensus-based decision where everyone has to agree before yeah. we do something. Yeah. Um, it might take a vote, a democratic decision. Mm. So there's lots of mm. processes to use as well. Yep. And again, if we look in general in business decision making and in general in meetings, there isn't one of those running. So um, often it's just a conversation and the kind of best or worst idea gets agreed, which I always find funny. <laughs> I don't, how, how can you, how, why, why do you do that? Yeah, that is a funny quirk of the meetings we find ourselves in. Yeah, and we go to a lot of meetings. And we go to a lot of meetings. Why do we find making decisions challenging? Well, some of them need an expert. This is true. Do you want a good joke? Yeah, go on. My dad used to tell me this as a kid. X is an unknown quantity. Spurt is a drip under pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what an expert is? Uh... An, un- an unknown quantity drip. of drip under pressure. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, less expert. The role of an expert is again vital. So, I was watching Welcome to Wrexham last night, and one of the players, Wise, unfortunately had a terrible diagnosis. And Ryan Reynolds suggested she get a second opinion. She got a second opinion, and the di- diagnosis was the best of the bad diagnoses. Right. How can that be? Ryan Reynolds. She goes to an expert. Mm. Yeah. And gets a professional diagnosis from a real expert. Yeah. And then another expert says something, says something completely different. Mm. What yeah. what does it what is an expert then? 
if it's not someone that knows all, is it? Clearly. Well, what's interesting about experts is they need to have a they need to have clear opinions. Uh, if you think about politics as another good example, surely to be good in politics, you need to be coherent on the economy. Yeah. Yeah. It would, it would make sense. Yeah. Yet, if you ask lots of different, not even politicians, but people who analyse politicians, mm. what the right thing to do with the economy is, they will come up with a completely different answers. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always looking at the, um, the growth figures for the British economy because I love looking at how different um, outlets portray what's going on. But one of them always portrays the UK economy as not doing very well. And they are one of the top experts. And every quarter, they revise the thing and say, oh, yeah, we, we, we slightly underplayed it last uh, quarter. We were a bit wrong. They actually did better. And then the next quarter, yeah, yeah, we, we were slightly underplayed it and it was a bit better. It, essentially, they've got a bias in their system that thinks that the UK is not doing very well. And then every three months, they just say, oh, yeah, we were a bit underplayed there. Whereas other experts uh, so, are getting it more accurate and some will be overstating it again. So, so um, mm. it's interesting, isn't it, the role of the expert uh, if you think about, I don't know if you know the expression, the wisdom of crowds, mm. but this is very, another way, which is actually that a, a very large amount of lay people, will, of, of non-experts, will in certain situations be more accurate than a very few experts. The yeah. classic example is guessing the number of marbles in the jar. And I famously ran this as a BBC, at the BBC once as part of a leadership experiment and I was running a workshop and I thought, oh yeah, I'll do this um, decision-making thing and we'll try and get them to guess the number of marbles in a jar. And the method for the wisdom of crowds is each person makes a guess, then you add up all the guesses and then you average it by the number of people. And the more people you've got, the closer you're going to get to the right answer. And in fact, they guessed to the exact marble, which was like 383, the exact number was what this crowd of people was came to. And I was so shocked that it actually worked. But, but you know, so, so the, if you'd had a jar of marbles expert, they would have had to pick a number. Mm. But the wisdom of crowds, you can net it out to what the aggregate of what everyone, th- everyone thinks. Yeah. And that's kind of what's going on in a democracy. Mm. My point is that the experts are going to have an opinion and they're, they're, the, the nature of them is it's likely that they're going to slightly overstate one way or the other, be more definitive than they, they should be. Mm. Yeah, so that's the role of the expert. We need them for some decisions, but sometimes the wisdom of crowds yeah. will beat them in terms of accuracy. Exactly. And there's a theory actually also about how companies should make decisions that in the, the right, the best number of people for decision-making is either five or seven. And you need to have an odd number. If you've got five people, you've got an odd number. If you had six people, you could get stuck, couldn't you, with a three, mm. three. three, three. But five or seven is the right number of people to make the best decision. If you have 20 people... I mean, too many, too many, and is any individual really that invested in mm. the same way? It starts yeah. to become less and less accountable. But with fi- they say the five and seven uh, people, you should have uh, two or three non-experts in that group. If they are all experts, they very very unlikely to change their opinion if they disagree. Uh, so let's say you've got five people, and they're all experts. Three think one thing, two the other. There's not going to be much conversation because the experts are less open to change. Mm. Whereas if you had two experts and three non-experts, the non-experts are open to considering the facts and discussing and thinking about things freshly, yep. and looking at the opinion from different perspectives, mm. and then make a decision. And again, if you think about how boards work with non-exec directors and um, advisors and things like that, you, you have that kind of decision-making there. Yeah, we're creating those kind of groups that are going to mm. help us make the best decision. Uh, what other things are at play in terms of what? 
the hurdles to making good decisions? Well, Chris, um, I read an article in The Guardian that explains this in some of the best detail ever. And one is that we we ourselves don't follow the advice that we give others. Yes, this is sadly true. Yeah. Uh, and let's say the decision to try to heal a relationship through having a tricky conversation. If you had a problem with someone, I would say to you, Chris, why don't you just talk to them? You're a reasonable person. They're a reasonable person. The two of you have got something going on between you. You could go and chat to them and you just say to them, look, I, I really respect you. I know I've fallen out over something or whatever, but and I would advise you to do that. Mm. You, you would advise me yeah. to do that? Yeah. But the uh, thing is, when it's ourselves, mm -hmm. we, we imagine the consequences and we can't get away from imagining how it might go wrong. Yeah. I actually don't mind if it goes wrong for you. Yeah. In you don't have way. to deal with the consequences. I also don't think it will go wrong. Mm. But for me, I start to think, oh, you know, if I, if I said that and they said this, then it could get even worse. Mm. So there's a, a real risk aversion in some areas. We, you know, um, if we were saying about um, whether to go for a new job and you said, I'm thinking about going for a new job. I say, great, go for it. But if you think about it, you're thinking, oh, yeah, but mm. I, might, I might have to keep going there every day to work. I might not think about there. the consequences, think about the risk. I might, yeah. <laughs> yeah, although so, so for yeah. ourselves, the mm. risks, we're quite good at imagining and feeling a bit mm. like the pizza. We can feel the feelings. Of, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not sure I want this. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that, so there's a sort of aversion to some of the more difficult decisions that we make for ourselves. Um, and even taking a promotion, if you get some people, if they offer a promotion, they think, oh, can I really do it? You know, and... Often in the coaching role, I'll be saying to them, Look, you know, if you can't do it, you just ask for your old job back. Mm. Just say, actually, do you know what? I can't do this. But there's a kind of fear for ourselves that we don't have when we look at things more neutrally for other people. Sometimes as well, surely we just get overwhelmed by the sheer number of choices we've got in front of us. We do. Do you? I'm thinking of things as simple as choosing what to have for breakfast. In the cereal aisle, there are a huge number of choices various things some granolas some not some kid-friendly cereal some not some chocolatey some not all different prices all different grams yeah i have this actually when i'm booking flights I'm, yeah. i was going to try and laugh at you and i realized when i go into expedia and i try to book a flight same with booking and flights, i look at all the options and i think we're traveling to work as well yeah i think that these are complex decisions chris and that's uh, again if we think back to the, the volatile uncertain complex ambiguous these are complex um, when I'm trying to book a flight, I start thinking, well, first of all, what about the price? Then what about the time of day? Exactly. What yeah. about the airline? Then do I want a direct or am I happy for a slightly cheaper price to have a one stop? Yeah. If I'm going to have a one stop, why don't I have a two stop? Now, uh, what if I can find the one stop with the wrong airline at the wrong time of day or the two stop with the right airline at the right price? And then the complex factors start to inhibit our ability to make sense mm. of what we're going to do. Yeah. How do we resolve that, do you think? I think we have to decide which of those frames and scales mean something to us and mean the most to us. So if it's the flight, is it the time of day that means the most to us? Landing at exactly the right time. But if it was the time of day, would you be prepared to pay double? That's where we've got to then... <laughs> <laughs> that's where there's, there's the complexity of it, isn't it? But if that's what matters the most... I think then we know on that scale where are we then prepared to pay for for that experience. Yes, but the right the right time of day costs triple now. Mm. Is is the right time of day still your decision making criteria? Then it's gonna 
default, isn't it? Is it? So at, at a certain point, the other scale <laughs> is now our default scale. That's it's, just two scales. That's how that's it works. Just two scales, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is what, so this is how we get stuck yeah. in complex decisions mm. is that there, it's not a perfect world and there's no perfect solution. No. We're either on the wrong flight time for the right money, mm. the right flight time for the wrong money. Not the right airline. I, I again, try to come back to either value-based or heuristic decision-making. Let me tell you about a recent trip I took. I had to go to Switzerland and... I don't like taking flights at 6 a.m. in the morning. I did take a lot of those flights, and each time my alarm rang at 3 o'clock, I woke up feeling like death. <laughs> like like I had a headache. Oh, no. And then I'd be at the airport at 4.30, feeling like I wish I was in bed. Mm. And then I, I, some people do this on their way to their holiday. And you think, do you really want to get up that early for your holiday? Well, that's fine for going on the holiday, but what about coming back? Do you want, do you want to... Get yeah. into the airport at two o'clock in the morning. In fact, I nearly fell out with my then girlfriend, now wife, once when she booked a flight back from Morocco <laughs> at 2 a.m. And essentially, we had no sleep on the last night of our holiday <laughs> and arrived back from holiday feeling horrible. But yeah. the, the, but she might have said, well, yeah, but the other one was three times the price. Isn't it worth X mm. for Y? Mm. And this, I think, is a, a place where a bit of creativity and um, imagination can come into play, thinking about what trade offs you're prepared to accept. Um, and Again, this is quite hard to do in group decision-making because everyone might be prepared to accept different trade-offs. And this is, again, why corporate decision-making, this is perhaps where it's harder. We, we, we can't always work out the exact spreadsheet of options yep. that will produce us an outcome that we're happy with. Mm. And maybe, rather than the braver decisions, maybe those complex decisions are harder and more important than whether you're going to do something completely radical once in a while. Yeah, so we could focus more on the the complex than the than the brave. Yeah, would be an interesting way to um, sharpen our decision making. Yeah, and make it faster. Uh, but how do you how do you how do you do that? Mm. I think you have to annihilate various um, dimensions of the problem. So if there is a ceiling for the cost, and that's it. Yeah, you've just got to eliminate every option that is. Yeah. not. If you're f- if you're committed to a certain time window, mm. you've got to eliminate all those other options. Yeah. Um, and then in the end, the other ones don't really matter. Toss a coin. Mm. And then we can go with our gut on those things. <laughs> you really want to go with your gut? Really How's go your gut it. been doing these days, Chris? <laughs> Is it that pizza? <laughs> Before we go, John, tell us how we're helping our clients with their decisions. Well, I think the biggest decision that we help all of our clients and their people with what to do with their time and effort. So when we are running leadership trainings or sales trainings, or when we are helping people think about their work, everything we're trying to do really is helping them optimize. And for me, optimization is how much time and effort I put into what. The skill part is how effective I am then with that time and effort. So so in, in simple terms, I think one of the biggest things learning and development can do is help people think about where they're going to put their effort. And that that single decision is really valuable. If you if you think about your work tasks, which ones you're going to prioritize and which ones you're going to put effort into, that that really, really matters. The next bit is the comp- competence, and maybe that's the multiplier. So if you put your effort into something and you're good at it, it should lead you to results and to outcomes and to success. So we also help people with the skill sets and help them think about how to become better at their core skills in order that when they do put effort in, they get an even better outcome. And, and I guess all of learning and development is somehow about that. It's about optimizing how the people in an organization work 
whether through effort and application or focus or through skill sets and capabilities. And it should be the case that if we can get that prioritization of effort and the motivation to go with it, times that by the skills to, 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 to do it, then we will get more bang for buck. And in my words, that means we can all go home to our friends and family at the end of the evening on time without working later and later in an inefficient system. Which is a lovely thought. That's what I like to do, Chris. And That's I do what we like to spark. I do think it's motivating to think if I can get this done, mm. then I can go and go home. Mm. Whereas many people's frame of reference is that they should be working really, really late. And I, I think that is a short-term success strategy, but a long-term failure one. There we go. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do give it a like and subscribe. And if you haven't enjoyed it, also, please do put some feedback in the comments. We yeah. will only get better if you tell us how to improve. And some people have been very vocal <laughs> about that. Uh, but we look forward to hearing from you all how we could get better, uh, including, I mean, Chris's decision this morning on his jumper and his pizza. If you've got any further yep. Pizza Express recommendations, please do let us know in the comments. Let us know in the comments. Like and subscribe. Thank you, John. Thank you, Chris. Thank you.